0: Okay, welcome everyone to our International Forest Monastery. The idea of nature in Buddhism is an interesting one. It kind of goes without needing any explanation that we have a monastery in the forest. In fact, a Buddhist monastery in the city would, for many people, seem kind of strange. If you knew anything about Buddhism, you'd think, well, of course a monastery should be in the forest. There's, there's reasons for that, Do you, or reasons why people th- would, would think that. Because you know, the Buddha was enlightened under a tree. You know, he became a Buddha under, at the foot of a tree very much in the tradition the uh, the Bodhi tree is one of the four things that we we actually remember as Buddhists if you've ever been to Bodhgaya you you can understand how important the the Bodhi tree is as a symbol and as a result the forest or the natural surrounding nature So the Bodhisattva was born under a tree, he became a Buddha under a tree. He first taught in a deer park, which used to be a forest, but is now a lawn, now just grass. But they did import some deer in, in the recent past and make it like a deer park. and he passed away under, between two trees. Now this actually has a lot to do with his own... Um, well, I guess it has a lot to do with the nature of a Buddha, really, because all Buddhas are supposed to have become enlightened under a tree. So there is something very important there in the tradition that uh, something intrinsically natural about Buddhism are intrinsically tied to nature. And of course, there are other obvious reasons, the more obvious reasons, I think, are why you're, you're meditating. What would you want to do meditation in the city for? Surrounded by unnatural things, you know, surrounded by chaos, by stress, by uh, sensuality. And people were saying on the way to the Dharma Center, no, it wasn't the Dharma Center, on the way to Yoga North, where we had this insight meditation group. And they have an insight meditation group, meets every Sunday. And uh, someone said there, I think, driving on the, no, it was at the the Dharma Center. Someone said driving here, saw all these signboards, buy this, you need this. You would be so much better if you had this. It didn't have that. Uh, this is the city. So we say, well, this is this sort of unnatural setting. is not good for meditation. Why? Because it distracts the mind. It overwhelms the mind. But there is some objection to that because you think, well, aren't we trying to understand reality? And isn't all of this very much a part of reality except especially our reality as city dwellers so city dwellers would object to this and there's something to all of that and it points to the how 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 important this concept of nature is how do we approach this there's there's many angles at which from which we can look at the idea of nature Some people are actually quite passionate about nature. They say um, going, getting back to nature. The best thing is getting back to nature. My parents um, grew up in Sudbury, this city. Oh, you're Canadians, you know where Sudbury is, no? Sudbury is in Northern Ontario, Canada, uh, mining town. It's a mining city. And uh, so they decided to get back to nature. And so they got 200 acres of forest and set up a farm and had chickens and sheep and even a few donkeys. One cow, one pig. They had they had a farm, lots of animals and a lot of killing as well on the farm. I used to watch chickens run around with their heads cut off. <laughs> they actually do. Yeah. So, so, getting back to nature, why why you know, uh, describe this sort of graphic scene? Is because it is part of the the, the problem here, that we don't grasp, it's that getting back to nature actually isn't as wholesome or pure or wonderful as we make it out to be. A lot of people, in especially in Canada, I think are enamored by the First Nations people in their lives because they're very natural and very pure. And so the First Nations people believe that actually the deer are um, se- presenting themselves to be killed by the hunters. And it's interesting how, how deer actually act because they do come towards you. I remember when I was young hunting deer, and uh, they do, when they when they first hear you they walk towards you. Then as soon as they figure out what you are, they run. You know, they're not really keen on it, but this is... They're not, they're not really looking to die, they're just naturally curious animals and probably before humans decided to hunt them they were fairly friendly animals as well. So, so many people are critical in this way and say humans have perverted nature or humans have disturbed nature. And uh, certainly there's something to that. Uh, human greed is a very powerful thing. The human mind is a very powerful thing. We're capable of so much more than ordinary animals. It's not that the monkeys don't want to uh, rape and pillage the forest. It's just that they're, they don't have, they're not able to. I don't. I don't think the monkeys are sitting there thinking, "Well, we better save some of this fruit for later." They're just incapable of harvesting it all. They're not smart enough. We had monkeys in the monastery in Sri Lanka, and they certainly weren't uh, uh, weren't any more moral than the humans. <laughs> Far less actually, stealing and killing and hurting each other. they they're really vicious little animals. The, the the one group of animals, one group of monkeys, it's different kinds. But uh, they, they fit well in their environment. The problem with humans is that we're somewhat... Um, we don't really fit with our environment. We're too powerful for it. We have the power to do great damage to our environment. So we've gotten to the point where being, a, being we're, we're no longer being contained by our environment. But we don't have the capabilities to, you know, we're not we're we're not made to reflect. Our our background is in the forest, and as you know, where it was easy to uh, fit in. But now we have these machines, and so on. And we, we aren't capable, as a species, of of considering this carefully and and being good stewards of nature. Some people say that. Uh, human greed and so on, is destroying, we're destroying our own environment, which I think is true and, and it's a valid criticism. So people talk about, for this reason, getting back to nature. But um, it, it's, I think it, the point is that it's simplistic and kind of naive to think that that's the answer. It is um, a, maybe a good first step, you might say, or it's, it's a step in the right direction because it's much simpler living in the forest, much more peaceful and so on. Theoretically. But on the other hand, if you look at what we've accomplished uh, by leaving the forest, um, what we've left behind, some of the negative things that we've left behind by leaving the forest or by leaving uh, nature and caves and so on. We left Behind this um, kill or be killed, kill or be killed uh, lifestyle, predator, prey, hunter and hunted. If you look at how nature works, we say it's very natural, right? So the lion kills the zebra, this is natural. There's nothing wrong with that. They say, why? Because it's natural. But th- this is kind of where we take issue in saying, well, what is difference, the difference between a human viciously you know, ripping the throat out of another human and uh, the lion doing it to the zebra? We take issue with this idea that somehow, just because it's quote-unquote natural, it means something. What is the difference between a hum- humans viciously murdering each other and the lion? Well, in you know, the same species, you might say, but it's really it's violence either way. You might say that the lion's more justified because he needs to eat and so on. And they say, well, for that reason it's it's proper. But this idea of proper, you see how it's a very religious idea. It's the idea that somehow there's a rhyme or reason to this. There's either two two trains of thought: one that it's just the way things are; there's nothing wrong or right; it just arose out of nothing, out of inorganic material. No. this is the evolutionary natural selection model, or then creationism, where where you say, well, it's God's will; God wanted it to be like this, somehow, or or even that's debatable. But we don't have to be theoretical or, or think about where did it all come from. We just have to look at what's, what it's doing, what it does to these beings. This is the difference. with in, bo- Nature in Buddhism is deeper than just trees and grass and wild animals. Nature is somewhat similar to the, the scientific concept of nature or physics, for example nature is what really exists nature is uh, the building blocks of reality but more important and what separates buddhism from from science is that that buddhism talks about Re- buddhism still carries over this idea of something being natural and something being unnatural Whereas physics would probably say, well, it's all natural, right? Plastic is just as natural as leaves and grass. It's all part of reality. But Buddhism does carry over this concept that certain things are more natural. And, and that's what has to, we have to do with, it has to do with coming to the forest. Why do we come to the forest? Because it helps you become more, helps you become more natural. Just by being in the forest, you become more peaceful, your mind quiets down, you have less stress, you have less concern, you have less uh, less self-consciousness, less fear, some people might have more fear in the forest, but there's less uh, complication, less chaos in the forest. Coming to the forest is coming to something that is simple, um, familiar. It is something that is comfortable for the human psyche. Whereas the complexity of the city is, is uncomfortable, it's stressful, it's jarring. So that, there, that, that really is why the forest is most useful, because it helps us become more natural. And so, while well, Buddhism sets up a framework of reality, you know, what really exists, what really is nature, you know, what is ultimate reality, and it, it doesn't equate all states. This is why Buddhism has this focus on the Four Noble Truths of Suffering. The Buddha said, there's a lot of truths out there I don't teach. He said, uh, the things I know and the things I teach things I know are are far greater than the things I teach. And why is that? Because they're useless, they're not a benefit. He taught things with a purpose and discriminated between states. States that lead to suffering and states that lead to peace or happiness. So if we get back to this tiger and the zebra, or the hunter and the hunted, from Buddhism, from Buddha's point of view, we understand, we could say that we're dealing with very unnatural states, states that are perverse, even in the mo- this most natural setting of the hunter and the hunted, because it's, um, it's, it's an illusion. It's, it's wrong to say that that's somehow natural, the lion and the zebra. It's formed. Lions and zebras didn't always exist. It's a habit. If you see, I was listening to this talk, this guy said, There's no, there, may, there may be no fixed laws in the universe, even gravity may just be a habit. Which to me makes sense. The idea that something is fixed in a law is, well, what he said is, is very human. Nature doesn't have laws. Animals don't have laws. Animals have habits. But only human beings have laws. So it's not something that you find in the universe around us. You find habits. It's a very interesting thing to say. It uh, resonates somehow. It's wrong. There's no reason for us to think that any one situation is more. more natural than another. I remember George Carlin, he said, well, maybe that's the only reason humans were here, is to bring plastic to the earth. Maybe that's what, you know, that's the plan. You know, that the, only, the only reason that the earth gave rise to humans is because so, it wanted plastic. So when we're gone, there'll be the earth plus plastic. The earth isn't going to care or be upset. That's just a good point. In some sense there's nothing, but there's nothing more natural about, or less natural about plastic. But there, it, why it jars with us is, is telling, because it, it is a product of greed. We wouldn't need all of these complex, non-biodegradable compounds if we didn't have so much greed in this world. We'd need a lot less anyway. We'd find ourselves more natural, more organic, sim- living simpler lives. You know, the story of this anagami. It was uh, an anagami and his I think his mother was very sick. His name was Gatikara. Gatikara. Gattikara, and he made uh, pots. Okay, so what's he going to do? He can't become a monk. He has to take care of his mother. Uh, and so he decides to go and make pots. How does he make pots? He goes down to the River, I think, and gathers up uh, earth that has fallen, so he doesn't have to dig in the earth and upset the beings and the living in the earth. and maybe he takes from old termite I know that the rats are digging up, I can't remember he takes earth somehow and he finds like fallen dead wood and so on and he makes pots and burns them, uh, fires them. and then he sits by the side of the road and he sells his pots. and how does he sell his pots people? walk by and say, oh, that's a nice pot. How much is that? He says, well, leave me some beans or rice or whatever you think it's worth, whatever you like. This is an anagami, you see. He had no greed, no anger. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't bargain with them. He didn't have any, nothing in his mind that would worry or or be um, attached to results. He wasn't quite an arahant. But uh, he had gotten rid of the five fetters, so, so no no wrong view of self, no doubt about the path and no attachment to rites and rituals, no aversion, and no sensual desire. So, he still had the other five, uh, which are Bhavarāga, raga mana, udaccha, and avijjaya. No, avijjaya. Okay, I think that's the five. I'm not going to go for it. five he had. So he, he lived a very natural life. He lived a very simple life. He was able to uh, be content with living this sort of a life that was free from all of the complications that we find in modern day. Because he was a much more natural person. His mind was in a much more natural state. And this is, I think, important to understand. So people say, what's wrong with anger? What's wrong with greed? We really do think or see or believe or experience through our practice that these things are unnatural. They're like a snake skin that has to be shrugged off there's something that is uh, artificial you might even say artificial they're not really intrinsic to the mind the Buddha said the mind is this mind is radiant oh monks but it becomes defiled by visiting or intermittent defilements, defilements that visit upon it. And you you really feel that. You feel, first of all, the very coarse defilements. You feel that they they must go, that they're causing stress, they're causing suffering. And then as you get rid of them, you see that there's deeper and more subtle defilements where before you would have thought they're fine so normally we think a lot of our desires are not really causing us suffering but eventually your mind becomes more refined and refined until you see that even those things you were clinging to are much coarser than uh, than than giving them up than than the alternative and so slowly and slowly you give them up this is what is the the meaning where our understanding in Buddhism of nature, of, of what is natural, and why—well, it's a, it's a way of putting some kind of, uh, or, or getting some kind of understanding about what we see around us, all of the complexity of the world around us. Why is it so complex? Why is there so? Why is there war? Why is there you know, conflict? Why is there religious? Um, bigotry and dogmatism and so on why is there violence in the world if we're not careful we might think these things are natural or or many people do have this kind of paradigm of seeing it all as natural in fact if, if you if you take a, a, a materialist stance, you would kind of have to say that things like rape and murder are natural. There's really nothing unnatural about them. You don't have a clear framework in which to, in which to uh, explain morality. There's nothing on which to base it. Unless you accept the existence of the mind and study the mind, because as soon as you study the mind, it becomes perfectly clear. It's it's not it's not dog it's not dogmatic. It's not based on blind faith. You really see. Oh, I'm causing myself suffering with these things. All of the things that cause violence and uh, conflict and suffering in the world. All of them are based on. Uh, the mind based on, on on our addictive mind states our partial mind states our intolerant mind states and ultimately on our deluded mind states and so the practice of meditation feels very much like a getting back to nature it feels very much like the more you practice as you see things as they are My, you, you, you become more natural. You feel more natural. You feel more in tune with nature. The Buddha said it's very difficult to enjoy being in the forest, which is remarkable, considering how uh, close we are to to the forest. And yet it's true. We we you know, we don't mind being in here in this insulated house, but. Well, the forests of Canada would kill any of us, I think, if we didn't have some kind of protection. But even the forests of Thailand or Sri Lanka are very difficult to enjoy. Many people, just to be in the forest alone is a fearsome thing. Even for the Bodhisattva, when he was not yet a Buddha, he said, when he was in the forest alone, it was frightening we have fear of the dark fear a lot of our fear incidentally has a lot to do with our conditioning you know, from buddhist point of view this is quite likely because of our memories of being you know the zebra <laughs> these are unnatural states unnatural fears cultivated i mean look at how our fear works in this life you experience something traumatic and you're afraid of it for the, you're afraid of things for the rest of your life this is unnatural. It's something that is acquired. It's not intrinsic. It doesn't have to be there. This is the mistake we make of thinking that these things are natural. I was having an argument with someone who, that uh, um, they were saying that it's impossible to to get rid of desire. It's impossible to be free from desire. This is what people believe. And um, this person was a theist, and I think it was probably kind of an attack on, on her beliefs that, uh, you know, what if you could get rid of desire? Uh-oh. And, you know, what, could it, what if you could get rid of defilements? It would kind of undermine a lot of their uh, need to surrender yourself to something external, need to rely on something external, right? If you could solve all your problems yourself, uh-oh. What good would religion be, right? who would need to go to see a priest who would need to pray to god who would fund the churches i think that that's kind of it kind of felt like a part of the reason why she was arguing not because it was somehow useful to say that and and it it's but but it, it, many people are of this opinion even not for those sorts of reasons thinking that you can't get rid of a, de- a desire by desire i'm i'm talking about addiction you know It's hard to see. Many people say, well, desire is good, as we were talking about. I I don't want to stop desiring ice cream. I I don't want to stop desiring friendship or companionship or so on. But all of these things in due time, the, 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 the imminent question is how we deal with our addictions, how we deal with our phobias, how we deal with our stresses, how do we deal with our depression? How do we deal with anger management, hatred, self-hatred? How do we deal with these things? And if our answer is, "Well, they're part of nature; they're just who you are, right? It's how God made you, or it's how how your your genes made you, or so on. It's how your brain is wired." You see how dangerous all these views are. The Buddha was very critical of these sorts of views, and we see them even today. He would he would certainly put the evolutionary the 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 evolutionary idea in the same category is dangerous. The first thing is, it's whether it's true or not. Even if it were true, you would you would very much want people not to believe it, because as soon as they believe that these things are natural, well, then rape is natural, torture is you know, ripping people's throats out that's natural. Lions do it, or it's just part of my nature. I was you know, genetically born that way. I was involved in a documentary. Just happened. They were looking for monks. They thought it'd be a good idea to get monks involved. It was. It's on the warrior gene. It's actually on the internet now, and there's indeed a short sequence with me in it. National Geographic. And uh, the warrior gene. They wanted to find. So they had us all do these DNA tests. DNA. What do they call those? Gene mapping. I don't know. They they go and they they take a swab and of your cheek and then. They figure out your DNA, whether you have this gene. And uh, indeed, I had the gene. I have the gene. I have the warrior gene. And it was funny because they put us through this really ridiculous test where you, you have, I mean, I don't know if the other guys did, but I saw right through it right away. It obviously wasn't real. They were trying to test and see if we'd get angry. This guy somehow something to do with you earning money through this tech quiz and then having the money taken away from you by this other guy and so you get you're supposed to torture him. It was really kind of silly and pathetic. I was, I was disappointed that they didn't use something more more sophisticated. But they said, so would you like to you know would you like to inflict pain on this guy? I mean, your you your loud noise is what it is. You can turn this dial and he has to hear a very, very loud noise. And would you like to? You have to pay some money to do it or something like that. And I said, no. <laughs> I just smiled at and I said, no, I'm fine. I mean, it was kind of easy for me because I don't touch money. I, you know, I wasn't going to... So in the end, they were going to give me this money to take away. And I was like, no, really, I don't. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> so kind of foiled the whole plan, really. You know, it wasn't impressive in the sense that I wasn't getting angry. It was kind of like, oh, well, mon- money is probably the wrong thing to try to entice me with because I can't take it anyway. But um, the, the the question, of course, that they're asking is whether whether you can find some trend, whether these people are all uh, inordinately or or um, exceptionally. Um, inclined towards conflict because of this gene. It was you know, highly controversial, and in fact, it's probably been disproved. It's kind of a silly theory. Um, this gene probably doesn't do what they say it does. But there was some research that showed that people who had this have this gene. One in three males have this gene, and males that have this gene may be more like more inclined towards violence and conflict. Uh, yeah violence. but they admitted over the phone to me afterwards that um, it has a lot to do with your environment. So maybe it, it can be one of the factors. Uh, but it has a lot to do with your growing up and so on. So this this is an example of of the this dangerous kind of thinking, thinking that you can somehow. Um, predict or or describe a person based on their genes which of course you can't and is um you know it's an interesting exercise to see from a buddhist point of view to see what you're coming into the world with right you know where your where your karma has taken you it's kind of like reading your horoscope kind of thing no the day were you born on well this is much more sophisticated what does your gene what do your genes say you know reading your tea leaves right reading your genes it's very similar <laughs> more reliable, reading your genes is more reliable For sure But it doesn't define who you are And it doesn't define your nature It defines the habits that you're currently in Even the physical body is just a habit It's not, It doesn't define who you are According to Buddhism you know, Obviously there's many people in the world who take issue with that But this is not something that you would want to believe in even if it were true. It would be very dangerous. And that's why you see, certainly that's why you see many materialists, secular materialists, um, can be very hard and and unfriendly people, um, coarse people. There's no question that from a meditator's perspective these people are not nice to be around. They're into alcohol, they're into... Sensuality and and just coarseness, food, everything, because that's all it is to them. It's all just physical. And, uh, it can all be described by genes and um, well, they're not quite so so dogmatic, but certainly there's a, there's a, um, there's always been this denial that you can somehow change your behavior, change your ways, change your mind. Except that now meditators are proving them wrong. So they're hooking their, themselves up to these machines and showing that, see, I've been meditating for 10 years, look what I've done to my brain. The brain is quite plastic, the, the physical is quite plastic. You can change it, you can alter it. So, based on this theory, we, based on this concept of being able to change things, being able to affect things. Buddhism takes a very specific uh, role, a specific path in terms of changing who we are. Now, I mean, everyone really, even materialists will say you can change who you are, right? You can choose, you want to um, be this or be that. No, actually many people say it's not. It's all determined or it's deterministic or it's... There is no free will, etc. But, uh, you know, people in a, gen- in a conventional sense say, you know, you can do this to be successful. If you work hard, you'll be successful in life, and so on. So, all, so Buddhism takes this route of becoming more natural. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Looking inside and untying the knots. Uh, if you compare a knot and a thread, or a knot and a rope, there's something about the rope without the knot that is more natural. It's in its natural state. And this is very similar to the the, the, the uh, nature of the mind. That uh, being successful in life or, or marriage or society or however, is still dealing with knots. It's still de- dealing with conventions. It's still de- dealing with artifices, uh, constructs, sankharas, what we call them in Pali, if you know this word. So there's a sort of a deconstruction that goes on in Buddhism. We pull this all apart and we look at it from ultimate, the point of view of ultimate reality. And so we come back to nature. They're very much uh, there. These there's these these two concepts or two definitions of nature are very much related. You see. On the one hand, we're talking about becoming more natural, right? And on the other hand, we're talking about what is what is nature. What is nature composed of? What is real? What is reality? And they're very much interlinked. The, it's, it's kind of in a wonderful way, you know, because it could have been another any other way theoretically, or you know, um, you know, you could, you could dream up a universe, theoretically, that is in any way, but uh, that uh, is otherwise. But the. the Wonderful thing about this universe that I mean that shows that it makes perfect sense. It's just how you would expect it. Is that the more you understand nature, the more natural you become. The closer you come to interacting with things as they are, the more natural you become. I mean that's really what it is. Is once you see things as they are, you react appropriately. Mm. Um, Clinging to things is not the appropriate response to them. Why? Because the the thing itself doesn't exist. The, the reality is the experience, something arising and ceasing. It's not a theoretical dogma, it's something that's quite practical and quite useful. Even if it were false, which it's not, it would be the best way to approach things. If you say, well, there's two ways of looking at it. You can look at it as experiences arising and ceasing, or you can look at it as a big bowl of Of cherries or a bowl of ice cream, let's say. So you can say, okay, there's a big bowl of ice cream in front of me, or there's seeing and there's tasting and there's feeling and so on. And the question is not which is correct, the question is which is more practical, which is more useful. And in all cases, subtle or coarse, we find that the practical course is seeing things as they are, seeing things from, sorry, from a point of view of experience. In every case of addiction, seeing and understanding the addiction for what it is, is the correct and um, the effective method of overcoming the addiction. It is the, the natural way of overcoming the addiction. It's not hating the addiction or getting upset about the addiction it's not suppressing the addiction it's not uh, indulging in the addiction until you become gorged it's seeing the addiction for what it is and and letting it go naturally untying the knot once you see what's really going on so ice cream, this is why we wouldn't want to do this with ice cream mostly because if I did that I wouldn't like ice cream anymore but that's really the point is that our liking is actually unnatural. There's nothing about ice cream that is intrinsically likable. It's only a, a habit that we've gained in the mind, this habit to like ice cream. So whether you want to apply it to ice cream or not, it's not a huge suffering. So as I said, start with what is really causing you suffering. What are the things I'm really addicted to that are really causing getting in the way of my life, getting in the way of my higher goals? and aspirations, what are the things that are causing me um, uh, negative emotions, like anger and frustration and fear and depression, hatred, -hatred. self-hatred, what is causing all of this? Again, the wonderful thing about the universe is just seeing it for what it is, just understanding it is enough to get rid of it. It's really the natural way The natural way is the answer to our problems You don't have to fix anything There's no pill that you take and everything goes away The only medicine you need is is understanding, is knowledge So in meditation this often becomes an issue Something comes up and I can't control it, what should I do? Or it's suffering, so what should I do? Well that's the point Get rid of this idea that you have to do something. Get rid of this idea that you have to fix something. That you have to make it better. That it has to be different than what it is. Understand it and understand the nature of it. Understand what is really there. There's very little in nature in Buddhism. We we break it down to four things. This is the Orthodox interpretation, orthodox concept of what is what, are, what is ultimately real. There are four things: the mind, the mind, the mental concomitants or the uh, mental qualities. It's probably the easiest way to understand it. The body or the physical world, and nibbana or nirvana. There's only four things. Kind of arbitrary sounding, no? But actually, this, is some, this isn't something that they just pulled out of a hat. This is very, you know, very much based on intensive and extended investigation. All of our experience is based on the mind. You, know, every, you can't even talk about the physical realm without, without the mind this is what we try to say that quantum physics showed, but the quantum physicists are very adamant many of them that it's not true but it sounds very much like it's true you know. as soon as you look at something you change it right and so the first the orthodox quantum physicists were were quite clear about this you can't talk about the world out there unless it's in the it's in the context of an observation quite a profound Uh, discovery so the first aspect thing that is real is is consciousness is something like the mind but not really the mind just awareness in every experience in every event there is consciousness without consciousness there is no event So to think of, you know, well, what about all the stars out there exploding? Is there a mind in there? I don't know. I don't know if there is or not. You might think that maybe there is angels out there, gods out there. If there's mind here in this course, physical body, why shouldn't there be mind elsewhere in the universe? What is the monopoly in the brain? What's so special about the brain that it creates consciousness? It doesn't appear to create consciousness at all. But there is the uh, awareness, no matter what. You you couldn't talk about the universe unless you had the awareness. Even if you're talking theoretically about this, the properties of this cup and this floor and and this room, you do so based on your awareness of it. You do so uh, dependent on your consciousness. So this is the basis of everything. This, This is important because this is how we can start to understand uh, nature. If we think in terms of cups and rooms and so on, we're dealing totally with, with something that's not real. It arises in the mind. If I start working on this building and thinking, where are we going to put the bathroom? Where are we going to put... What color are we going to paint it and so on? And you know, to fix the leaks and this and that. Not, you know? There's no, there's no meditative benefit to this because it's not dealing with reality. The mind is not uh, in, in a state that is natural. It's not in a natural state. and It's not dealing with nature or dealing with reality. When we focus on the mind, immediately we are, you see. You see how different it is when you start looking at your own mind and seeing what's going on with the mind. You say, oh, it's quite different actually. There's something very real here. The difference between studying the mind and studying architecture is quite profound. Architecture has nothing to do with reality in a way that studying the mind very much does. Because you see stuff. Oh, you see emotions and so on. And so this is the second part. Once you look at the mind, you start to see what's in the mind. You start to understand the qualities of mind. They're not all the same. They're not all in us at the same time, right? We're not always angry, but we sometimes are. So the the ordinary way of understanding this is, well, the mind is one big thing and it's got this stuff in it that moves around and so on. But uh, that's not actually how the Buddhist concept of reality goes. You, you can't really say that the mind is a thing because again, you're dealing with something in, in the mind, this concept. When you say, okay, there is the mind and it's got stuff in it, well that's just a concept. All the stuff I'm talking to you about is just concept. But when you look at the mind, all you can say is now there is this, now there is this. And so we don't actually think of these things as entities. They're an aspect of an experience, a momentary experience. When you see, there is seeing. If you like what, what you see, then it is liking. When you want what you see, you wanting. When you make intention to get what you see, this is intending. Moment after moment, this is what is really real, really natural. So The, the mind is made up of many different states. And moreover, we see how these two things are working in a very uh, orderly fashion. You know, states don't just arise. It's not like a bowl of marbles where you, you pick one and you don't know which it's going to be and they're just mixed up. It's not actually like that at all. There's an order to it. So it works like this. You see something, there's a happy, a pleasant pleasant feeling. Because of the pleasant feeling, there's liking of that. Because of liking, there's a remembering and then wanting of it in the future. And then the wanting comes up later, and so there's the getting of it. And when you get it, you feel happy, you like it. Then you want it, and you get it, and you like it, and you want it, and you get it. And this grows. You see there's a very orderly pattern here. And it can be explained by referring to what we call the brain. When you look at the brain, you see, what, you see how this is all going on. So this is the third aspect of reality, is the physical. The physical seems to be somehow related to the mental. Um, you know, for a lot of people, it's what gives rise to the mental. They think the mind arises in the brain. But again, we're looking at this from quite a different perspective. And whatever we consider to be true... We have to choose which is more useful, and, and quite clearly, this is far more useful. So, when we look at it from this perspective, we see that uh, the mind affects, or the, sorry, the brain affects the mind, but the mind also affects the brain. And, and the rest of the body as well. You know, our body can affect us in many ways. If someone hits you, you feel pain. If you, if you have bad knees or bad back, it will give rise to mental. Uh, experiences, mental mental qualities of you know, liking and disliking and so on. If you feel pleasure, if you see some, this, this all comes through the filter of the body. So this is the third aspect of nature. Now the fourth aspect of nature is really how we tie this all into um, getting back to nature, the ethical ethical <laughs> nature of existence, how we're not just dealing with realities, but we're actually trying to accomplish something. So when I talked about a knot and the, and the rope, this is a very good analogy. The, the knot is like samsara and the rope is like nibbana. You, you know, the, if you look at the rope, it's like there was never a knot there, but when you tie the knot, it seems like something you've created something. But this is in fact how this process works. These three things, the mind, the mental concomitants, and the body are just basically the mind and the body, watching how these work together. Once you, you know, as you understand and as you untie the knots, your, your, your uh, emotions, you, know, you, you see things as they are and you catch yourself, instead of creating this loop, you, you, you redirect the mind, So you go from one to the other, to the other, and then back back in a circle. When you get to the link, so you see something, normally you say, seeing and then liking, right? When you see something, then you like what you see, or you dislike what you see. So you say, this is good or this is bad. We bring it back and we say, this is this. Seeing is just seeing. When we say to ourselves, seeing, seeing, when you you see something, when you're sitting in meditation and a bright light comes, normally the, the reaction is to say, oh, this is interesting, this is nice, it feels pleasurable, and you like it, and so every time you meditate, you're looking for this light. We say, this is this, this is seeing, and so we stop this loop, this is, a step in breaking the chain, breaking this feedback loop. It's not just chemicals in the brain. There is very much a mental aspect to it. When you see something, if you say to yourself, seeing, seeing, you have no reason to like it. It's just seeing. If someone yells at you and you say, hearing, hearing, you have no reason to be upset, and you aren't upset. When you have to come up in front of a group of people and give a talk and you're nervous and so on, you say, worry, nervous, nervous, or tense, tense, or so on. You have no reason to be tense. You you you, you you're, no, you're no longer in front of a group of people. All in your mind, you're only seeing, you're only feeling. When you feel upset and you say upset, upset. When you're afraid and you say afraid, afraid. You break the cycle. Instead of afraid and then getting upset about your fear and worried about it and creating more and more fear and more and more upset and oh, thinking it's a problem and it's, it becomes a bigger and bigger problem. You break this. You break it down to what's really there. And immediately you let go. There's no. This isn't theoretical. This is something a two-year, you know, a five-year-old could do. I remember, this man told me that he just taught his five or his seven-year-old. I think no, a seven-year-old. Let's say. I think she was seven or eight years old, and he said, "I was just amazed how easy it was for her to understand and pick up, and how how much calmer it made her, and how she was. She really got it and was able to practice it." Of course, many people can't do this. It's not that it's easy for everyone to practice. It's actually quite difficult for most people. But it has nothing to do with the uh, nature of the practice. When it, when it doesn't work, it clearly works very well. And it works. And it works immediately to change the habit. All we need is persistence, patience, and um, sincerity. Um, if we have many, many knots inside, I mean, this is the other thing is we're using the mind to fix the mind. So if we have, if our mind is broken, it's not going to be a quick fix. You have to fix the mind in order to fix the mind. But this is the, the path that we're talking about in Buddhism. It's the path of coming back to nature. So I think this is um, really what we mean by natural and and nature in Buddhism. These two aspects of becoming more natural by understanding the truth, or what is what is the truth of nature, what is artificial, what is real, and what is unreal, what is natural and what is unnatural. Seeing that our addictions and aversions and partialities, these are all unnatural in a sense, they're what's causing us suffering, they're what's destroying the world, all you know—all of our um, conflict in the world, all of the chaos, it can all be traced back to something that is unnatural, and this is why people say this, human beings are very unnatural, we've created things that are very unnatural. I think this is true, but We have to be careful how we understand it. It doesn't mean going back to the forest and living in caves and hunting buffalo. That's also not yet natural. It's also composed of a lot of unnatural states of uh, addiction and aversion and delusion. What is really natural is everywhere. It's in the cities. It's in the country. It's in everything that we experience. The important thing is to come back and understand reality in terms of experience, because whether you, um, whether you accept that it's the the, be, the the most real way of looking at reality, or the most truth, the most true way of looking at reality, certainly the most practical, it's the only one that really uh, works to fix the problems that we have in our minds. Uh, And this is something that we see through our practice. It's something that is clearly observable. So this is what we are working towards uh, as Buddhists and in our meditation. This is why we're here. This is why people come out to the forest and why people, more importantly, come out to a forest monastery because they figure it's a good shot at... Gaining some understanding of nature and of bringing oneself closer to nature, closer to a natural state of being, which is—sorry, um, I didn't ever talk, get to it—the the fourth one, which is nibbana, which is this state of untying the knot, of um, getting to the most perfectly natural state, which is freedom from suffering. It's, um, this is the Buddhist theory that the most, the the perfectly natural state, that state which is most natural, is nirvana or Nibbana or freedom. When you, the unbinding, vāna means being bound or or tied up in knots, nīr means having them untied or being unbound, being unattached to anything. This is what we aim for, this is the ultimate reality and the most natural thing. in in existence this freedom that we strive for so for this reason we are here and thank you all for coming and now we can get on with it and put this into practice to